Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I didn't really set out to write a book. I started writing right after my dad was diagnosed. And I would write at two in the morning when I couldn't sleep. I would write on airplanes. I was just Mm -hmm. writing. And early on, I really had no intention of creating a book out of it. But as I was writing, eventually, maybe six months in, I started sending chapters or essays to people in my life. Like I'd have a conversation with someone about someone who just got diagnosed with cancer. And I'd say, oh, I wrote this little thing. It might be helpful to you. I'll send it along. And I would maybe post little things on social media. And it became clear over time that I wanted to speak to this kind of pain. So I guess all that to say, like the book was mostly written before I decided it was a book. And I think in a way that was very helpful because it has a little bit of the purity of just storytelling. Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, their heart, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who have directly benefited from their work. Today, I'm in a beautiful conversation with the author of a book called Touching Two Worlds. Her name is Dr. Sherry Walling. And Dr. Walling is a clinical psychologist who's been treating patients through trauma, stress, grief, and burnout for 20 years. And back in 2017, she lost her father to esophageal cancer. And then six months later to the day, she lost her brother to suicide. And Dr. Sherry got to see what it was like to negotiate the grieving process from the other side, which of course fleshed out her understanding of that grieving process far beyond the clinical research. And she felt called to journal about her personal experiences with much depth and nuance. And then eventually her journal became the book Touching Two Worlds, which centers around her journey in navigating that process of grieving after losing her father and brother so close together. And in our conversation, Dr. Sherry goes into depth about the grieving process. We talk about how to care for grieving people properly, how best to cope when you feel triggered, if you're the one that's grieving, why we need to change the way we talk about suicide. And we also went over how to talk to someone who's in the grieving process. And if we're the ones in the grieving process, how to talk about it with others. Obviously, grieving is a very personal experience, 
But like all human experiences, there are common themes and perhaps best practices. And being a grieving expert, Dr. Sherry has a lot to say about what to expect when you or someone you love is going through that process. And it's not just the loss of someone. It could also be grieving the loss of a relationship or the loss of a business or the loss of a home. We all experience loss in some form or fashion. And that's why I really love this conversation because it's so relatable. It's so practical. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it as well. So without further ado, let's get to it. I want to introduce you to clinical psychologist, mental health advocate, podcaster, author, and speaker, Dr. Sherry Walling. Dr. Sherry Walling, thank you so much for coming onto my podcast. I really look forward to this conversation. As I mentioned to you before we started recording. You're unlike many of the guests that I typically have. You know how I'll I'll articulate it? Hmm. You seem like you live in the moment and you don't necessarily identify by what you've done in the past, right? So based on reading your work, your book, and researching your stuff, it seems like you're very adaptable, which is really interesting. And I'm, I'm just looking forward to unpacking that And maybe the listeners will see what I'm talking about when we get deeper into your story. So anyway, thanks for coming on to the show. My pleasure. And I'm excited to be in this moment with you. So let's let's jump in. I would love to start talking about young Sherry. All right. I don't know what they called you back in when you were a kid, but did you have a nickname? It was pretty much Sherry. There was a brief stint where I wanted to be called Sam Mm -hmm. because I thought it was sort of edgy to have a name that wasn't like clearly identifiable as feminine. And the initials of my name, my given name spelled Sam. So I Mm -hmm. tried to help that catch on for a while, but it didn't, I didn't really have the participation of the community. So Sherry, it was. You currently are working as a clinical psychologist, mental health advocate. But when you were a child, when you were, you know, seven, eight years old or whatever, do you remember having a favorite toy or activity that you you just naturally gravitated towards? I spent a lot of time outside. Yeah, it was sort of in the in the days when parents would say, hey, get outside and we'll see you at dinner. Like my dad would just sort of stand in the driveway and yell my name. And I lived in a neighborhood that wasn't like a traditional grid. It it had some pastures where there were cows and some apple orchards. And so it was like a really lovely space to roam. And so Mm -hmm. I did a lot of roaming and a lot of climbing trees and sort of a, a little bit of a wild child, I suppose. This is in Redding, California? Yep. Redding, California. Okay. Yeah. You were the older sister and you had two younger brothers. So what was that dynamic like? Were you like the protector or did you not want to have anything to do with them? I have one brother that's four years younger than me and then a mm-hmm. brother that's seven years younger. So I was solidly the older sister, right? There's a pretty significant gap, especially between myself and my youngest brother. And I think one of the features of our family that shaped my experience as a child is that my mom was diagnosed with MS a few months after I was born. So this was always woven into my life was to have a mother who was 
walking with a cane or a walker or in some instances in a wheelchair, but had some physical limitations. Mm -hmm. And so my life as a big sister was shaped by that because my mom physically just needed some help to chase down toddlers and like retrieve children from trees or whatever, whatever the physical demands were. I often had a role in sort of the physical caretaking of my brothers as they were really young. And that made me the kind of sister that my dad actually would call me little mama. So I really had a very clear role as a helper, caretaker, protector of my younger brothers. What did your parents do? And what was the philosophy or ideology that they would echo in your household while you and your brothers were growing up? Yeah. So my dad was a second generation minister. And he was not the primary minister. He was like the youth pastor when I was growing up. And so we grew up in a very religious household. My mom trained to be a teacher, but when she was diagnosed with MS, she stopped teaching formally and was mostly home with us. So our family had some very traditional gender roles and had a very kind of conservative, evangelical framework or way of seeing the world. That for me as a young child, my lens on this has shifted over time. But for me as a young child, I understood that ethos to be one of kind of responsibility, of being of service, of being helpful, of sort of taking seriously one's mission in the world. So there were some real gifts for me as a young child growing up in that household. I think also being the daughter of a minister meant that it's a little bit of a public role, right? People watch the minister's children. They watch the minister's family. Like, are they spiritual enough? Are they upholding the tenets of the faith? What are they up to? Are they in mischief? And there are some very negative parts of that experience. But the positive part of it for me was that my actions mattered. And that I had the space to make a difference, that I had the space to do things that that sort of were important or significant for other people. That could go one of two ways. You know, you could be the rebellious person who's like sneaking out in the evenings and getting up to no good. So would you say that you were very disciplined as a young person in that regard, knowing that you were being watched? Did you carry that around with you or were you having to be reminded of that? On occasion. Yeah, I was pretty disciplined. I was pretty adult as a child. I think there's lots of reasons to that. Some is the the religious aspect of my upbringing. Some is having a parent with a disability. Later in my teen life, my dad stopped working and had a major bout with depression. And so there was a lot of kind of adult pressure and responsibility on me for most of my growing up years. So I never had a sort of high school rebellious streak, or, you know, I think I felt pretty serious and pretty focused. In your book, Touching Two Worlds, you describe your dad as being a very private person. So when he was battling depression, was that something that you guys talked about as a family? And then secondly, you and I are from the same generation. You were considered crazy if you had depression or any kind of mental health issues back in like the 70s and the 80s. So what was your understanding of that back in those days? Yeah, I think 
it wasn't something that was named very often for us as a family, but it was severe enough that it was quite obvious, right? There were days when he would just spend the day laying in bed, days and days for months on end. And so the the severity was clear that something was wrong. And we sort of put together, we meaning my brothers and I sort of put together the language to describe what was happening in a way that makes sense to us. But it wasn't like our, our parents sort of sat us down and talked to us about what was happening. And so because it was somewhat shrouded in silence or wasn't really given language, I think it was so up for interpretation. And it did create a lot of fear for me, a lot of maybe not the label crazy, but the label of like, something's really wrong. And Mm -hmm. so there wasn't a lot of uh, scaffolding or structure to help support my understanding of that as a young person. We're eventually going to talk about your dad's passing. And you wrote in your book how they only had like $15,000 in savings when he got sick. So as a young person, again, like now you're in your teenage years, what's your understanding of success like? Like What's your relationship like with that word? What does it mean to you? What do you envision yourself doing as you get older? So as a teenager, I was quite focused on being successful enough to get a scholarship to college. (laughs) <laughs> because finances were a concern for our family. Really, the the way for me to get to school was going to be to have the kinds of grades or the resume that would allow me to go to school on someone else's dime. So that was success for me as a kid. And as a high schooler, that meant taking... I don't know, like I probably took, I took several classes at the community college. I took like seven AP classes. Like I was just this like a little machine of academic excellence. (laughs) I was also an athlete. And so I spent a lot of time running and training and was just quite focused on checking off these boxes so that I would get sort of a ticket out of town was what I was looking for at that point. Did you envision yourself going to like the big cities and having that experience and living the, remember that I had, used to have that show, the lifestyles of rich and famous. Yes. I think I was <laughs> kind of scared of that. Like I never thought that was going to be for me. So I went to UC Davis, which is a few hours from where I grew up in Redding, California, which is a major, it's a big school. It's a university of California, but it's a small town. It's a little sort of podunk agricultural town. And that felt safe to me. It probably wasn't the right university for me now that I understand myself and how I learn a little bit better, but it felt Mm -hmm. safe. And so that's where I ended up going. Was being a youth pastor, did you feel that that was your dad's passion back when you were a kid? Like, did you feel him being passionate about that? Or do you feel like there's something he wanted to do, but he didn't do? Yeah, that's hard for me to know. I think my dad would have loved to be an athlete, you know, mm-hmm. he loved baseball, he loved sports. I think if he would have allowed himself the full range of what was possible, that he would have done something related to sports, even if that was to coach. You know, he grew up in a pastor's family. His father was a Southern Baptist minister in Indiana and was really, really devoted to service. And so I think in some ways he was potentially following in his father's footsteps, or at least trying to please his father. I think it was really important to him to do something service-oriented. But it's a hard life, and I don't know that it made his heart sing, you know. 
I think he did it because he thought it was the right thing to do, not because he loved it. But that's through the eyes of a teenager. So I say that with a lot of gentleness and not a lot of authority. Did I read it correct? You also went to seminary? I also went to seminary. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, her, what was it's that? hereditary. So you went to Davis, UC Davis first, then you went to semin- you went to Fuller Seminary, right? I did, yeah. What was the idea with that? Were you going to take the baton and start preaching? or? I was interested in that, but you have to understand that the tradition that I grew up in, women weren't permitted to speak from the front of the church. Women couldn't lead men. Like There was a lot of very, very sort of rigid understanding about the role that women could play as either intellectual or spiritual leaders. So for me to go to seminary with any sort of idea or sense that I might be active in church ministry was actually quite a rebellion. It was quite a thing that was like disconcerting to the people that I grew up with. But in a way, it was my attempt to kind of redeem that part of my childhood to sort of understand. I grew up in this very dogmatic view of what God is and who God is and how God functions and how God interacts with humans. And it wasn't holding together for me as a young adult. And so I think I sort of had the choice to turn away or to try again, like to go deeper. And so I went deeper and got a master's degree in theology and really tried to hold together or at least recreate for myself, sort of from the shreds of the tradition that I came from, a new way of interacting with or understanding the tradition in a way that felt almost less abusive, like that felt like more tolerable to me. You eventually pivoted towards psychology. So what was the inspiration for that? Yeah, it really was an integration. So. I did a PhD in psychology alongside my master's in theology so that I could speak both languages. And I didn't really have a grand plan at the beginning, but my work within psychology was very much focused on trauma. And my Mm -hmm. theological training ended up being really, really helpful because when people are going through life-altering or life-threatening experiences, they're often asking these really big questions about where is God? Is there justice in the world? What creates safety? Am I loved? Am I worthy? I mean, these are philosophical questions. They're existential questions, but they're also theological questions. I think the ability to be fluid in the scientific and the spiritual started in that part of my education and mm-hmm. has been really important you know, to me as a human and as a professional. Having grown up with a minister as a father, right? Yeah. How did your understanding of God evolve as you were becoming more integrated in psychology and your own seminary studies? I think my journey with God or with the spiritual or with the divine has been to transition from a place of knowing Mm -hmm. to a place of not knowing and to that being a much more comfortable and true framework for me. Mm -hmm. So part of the early life was, 
was the dogma, was the study, was the theology. I mean, I memorized mass amounts of scripture and just, it was this idea that if you study and you pursue and you know that you will encounter God, you will be in touch with the divine and that God is knowable, that God is personal. And that really, I think, has shifted and unwoven for me over time, such that the divine as he or she is, is, isn't knowable and that's perfect and as it should be. And it's these sort of maybe series of encounters or brushes up with the spiritual, but it's not a sort of definable, finite, studyable phenomenon in the way that I understood it in the first part of my life. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. And was this a time where you visited El Salvador and Guatemala? I spent time in Central America, yeah, when I was in graduate school. But you've been to several graduate schools, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> in this, my was 20s. This, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because you told a story in your book that I, I just thought was really beautiful about Ana Maria in El Salvador. And I would love for you to share as much of that as you, as you would like to, just to kind of sure. give this context to this idea of grieving as we're sort of entering into that part of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I spent a summer traveling, just backpacking throughout mm-hmm. Central America to study Spanish, to go on adventure. And I really wanted to practice Spanish. So I, I stayed in people's homes as much as I could. And there are all these little language schools that are sort of scattered throughout places in Central America. And I ended up getting a, uh, arrangement for lodging in the home of a woman named Ana Maria. And she lived a few blocks from the University of San Salvador in El Salvador. And she just had this very lovely maternal kind of presence. And she ran a little pupuseria out of her sort of an enclosed porch, which pupusas, if people haven't had them, are this sort of like thick tortilla where the inside is stuffed. So it's stuffed with cheese or stuffed with beans. And it's just like 
a lovely Salvadorian dish. But Ana Maria, her family was really impacted by the civil war that happened in El Salvador. And her son was disappeared. And in El Salvador, actually throughout Central America, they use this language of was disappeared because it's this idea that someone didn't disappear themselves. Someone else disappeared them. So maybe they were kidnapped. Maybe they were forced into armed service. Maybe they were killed, but it's not known and they're just gone. So she tells a story about her son being disappeared. And then shortly thereafter, her husband dies of a heart attack. And so she's left really without any family and left alone. And she talked about waiting for them to come back every day. And every time there's sound outside the door, every time someone comes to the door, she's waiting for them. She's looking for them. And over and over and over, she's waiting and and they don't come. They never come. But one time, some young kid came and asked if she had any food. And so she fed them and sort of turned into this experience of making food every day for whoever would come, for whoever was walking by or whoever was near, which turned into this small business that she runs, this pupuseria, where she hosts university students, sort of kids of all ages, professors, people from her neighborhood, fill her home every day. And they have lunch, they have dinner. And she's created this kind of makeshift family or her home is full, even though her grief is very close to the surface. And it's easy to see that there's elements of this loss that are always with her, always on her mind. But she's created, you know, this sort of energy around her where she's caretaking the neighborhood and in a way that was really beautiful to me as a young person. Yeah, you call her a grieving hero. What do you mean by that term? I was really impacted by her ability to talk about her story through tears. It was right at the surface. Mm-hmm. But yet she's taken action with her life to pour out love, to pour out nourishment, to pour out energy, even though in many ways her heart is still broken. So to hold the two together, that's really the theme of my book, to hold grief and to hold joy in one lifetime, in one heart, in one moment, and to be present to both at the same time, I think is deep and important work in the course of human life. I want to unpack that more a little bit later, but I want to get through more of your earlier years first. So was this also the time you went to Guatemala or was that a little bit later when you went there to study genocide or maybe you didn't know you were studying genocide, but that's what ended up happening. Yeah. My first trip to Guatemala was on this same trip, Um, Mm -hmm. but I went back many more times, probably seven or eight more times. And talk a little bit about what you observed as the genocide having effects on the mental health of the people that you were living around. I mean, that's a really big story, how the systematic murder of a whole subset of a culture of a population affects everyone else. I mean, essentially, I think there's a lot of heartbreak and a lot of desperation for folks who have had so much loss. And for that loss to have been collectively sanctioned, where there's almost implicit permission by a subset of the population for this other group to be killed. I know I'm maybe speaking about it in a really vague way, but like 
it's a different kind of grief when it happens so thoroughly and so many people are affected. And I think for many of the people that I interacted with, there became in some senses, this sort of internalized trauma such that that's what is expected of life, that that pain, that suffering, that mistreatment, abuse are sort of the recipe of what happens in one's life. And I think that has really significant mental health consequences because I think it it sort of skews towards pain rather than also this pursuit of joy or pursuit of delight, pursuit of love, pursuit of safety. When you've not known safety and even the generations ahead of you have not known safety, it's a hard thing to know how to find or even to really know what it feels like. Unlike the Anna Marie story, they were not able to have that balance of grief and joy that you mentioned earlier. You saw a lot of instances where the grief had kind of gone unchecked, unacknowledged. Somebody wasn't telling the truth of what happened. And you you said one of the takeaways was that healing requires truth telling, not it, you should tell the truth. It, require, it requires yeah. truth telling. So was that more of a systemic thing where that just wasn't happening or is it about truth telling on the grassroots level? Like, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. And it's certainly difficult to compare Anna Maria as one individual to a a general population grouping of humans. But I think part of the way that genocide happened in Guatemala has been the really the systematic silencing of many of these stories. And so thousands and thousands of people lost loved ones with no who were disappeared with no sense of where they are, where they were killed, if they were killed and haven't had the freedom or really the sort of collective space to tell those stories. There was an attempt at doing something similar to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. There was an attempt to do something similar to that in Guatemala. And it kind of happened a little bit, but it didn't really take off and it wasn't really well protected. And so many of the truth tellers, they've been killed. They've been subject to assassination. There's not been this sort of collective narrative that allows people to say, this is what happened to me. This is my loved one who's no longer here. And I write in the book a little bit about visiting the forensic anthropology unit in Guatemala, which is a place where many of those human remains are stored, but they're human remains that are being pieced together through forensic anthropology. Their names aren't known. There's this sort of deep investigation of trying to figure out who these individuals are, where their families are, what to do with their bodies, how they passed. And that's slow, slow and arduous work. And there are thousands and thousands of bodies sort of lined up for their stories to be told. And so even though Ana Maria didn't really know the location of her son, she had this little safe place. She had this little nook, this little community in which his name was known and her husband's name was known and her story was known. And so I could see in her, in some ways, a kind of wholeness to be able to tell that story and weep openly. And I'm sure that's happening in lots of individual lives in Guatemala, but the collective observation is that there's not that free and safe space to share those names and to tell those stories. And I think that keeps people in a kind of captive grief, both at the individual and collective level. So you're having these experiences and yet you're also finishing up your 
clinical psychology degree. I've never done that before. So, but I'm imagining there's a day that comes where you have to decide which area do I want to focus on, right? I could be a relationship psychologist. I could deal with trauma, grief, et cetera. You started working in grief. Yeah. In trauma. Trauma. Yeah. So why did you decide trauma? I sort of discovered that I'm better at calming people down than waking people up, if that makes sense. (laughs) I really like the intensity of trauma work. I like the amount of courage that it takes both on behalf of the clients and I guess in some ways on behalf of myself or of other caretakers in that space. It's a little bit like being an ER doc if you're a physician, right? You're sort of jumping in to where there's active bleeding and trying to figure out how do we put the pieces back together? And I specifically at that time was working with recently returned OEF, OAF veterans. So very relatively recent combat related trauma. And that definitely had that feeling of how do we jump in and stop the bleeding and help piece people back together in such a way that they can be active in society and active in their own lives and in their own relationships in a way that that feels consistent with who they are. And at that point, had you personally experienced much trauma? I know later, obviously, your dad and your brother passed and that changed things a bit. But did you feel like you could relate to what people were going through or did you kind of not? It was a more theoretical. Well, this is always a tricky question because, you know, I had certainly known pain and heartache and fear and loss. But I think trauma is in many ways a highly individualized perspective And in terms of the people that I was serving, I'd never gone to war. And so I have a great deal of humility around, I'm in support of your journey, not being someone who's on the same journey. That doesn't mean that I haven't done my chops in life, right? I haven't walked through my painful things. But I think there's an importance in being deferential to the fact that someone is in their very own unique experience when they're doing trauma work. Did you have mentors? It was just someone who you thought was like the Michael Jordan of doing trauma work, trauma psychology that you really looked up to and you wanted to really emulate their practice? I did. I was quite taken with Bessel van der Kolk's work. He's since written the book, When the Body Keeps the Score, which is mm-hmm. a wonderful book. The book hadn't been written yet, but I was aware of his work and really was interested in what he was doing. There's another person named Rachel Yehuda who I was so curious about and was watching her work really in understanding the intergenerational transmission of trauma and trying to do that at a very genetic biological level to understand how trauma is passed through, through families. So yeah, I had wonderful teachers. I had wonderful supervisors, even within the VA system, the veterans administration. I think sometimes these big government hospitals they're bureaucratic. They can get a really bad reputation, but I worked with people who were really, really compassionate and really cared about what they were doing and about sort of taking care of the folks that they were entrusted with. What were some of the other considerations starting up your own practice that people wouldn't think about, but someone who's gone through that would have to, you know, could relate to as far as maybe like the expense of starting up something on your own or getting support or people not being able to afford think mm-hmm. the services that you want to offer to that particular population. Is there anything like that that you went through that you thought this is not right? I need to make this better. Well, I will say I've actually never practiced by myself. 
as a clinical psychologist, especially not as a trauma psychologist. So that's one of the things that I would say is that I don't think trauma work should be done in isolation. So I've always worked in a treatment team that involves multiple specialists. And I think that's really important as a caretaker to not ever become totally isolated. I think a lot of clinical psychologists do go out on their own. It's a more sort of probably lucrative path, but I think it is pretty costly in terms of mental health. Mm -hmm. At this point in my life, I do run my own business, but I, I do have a team that I work with and I really focus a lot on entrepreneurial mental health, which definitely has its share of trauma and grief but I'm not functioning as a trauma therapist where I'm sort of in the trenches of trauma and grief day in and day out. There's a, a little more variety and flexibility in my work now. What were some of your earlier metrics for success like? There've always been multiple parts to my work. So even mm -hmm. early on in my career, I did a lot in academia. Like I was writing, I was teaching. And so getting things published or getting the opportunity to do talks in different places, like getting ideas out there has always felt like an important part of success for me in my professional life. And I think that the deep love of teaching is also part of that, right? This idea of like transmitting knowledge and the exchange of like, how do you think about this? How do we make sense of this? It feels really important and has been a marker of success for me. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in your book that over the years, you became less formal in your work and in your approach. And that's yeah. certainly what I get a sense of when I'm talking to you and even in this brief interaction. What informed that? And maybe this is a good time to talk about your personal experience with grief and with trauma. So the book that I've written, Touching Two Worlds, is heavily memoir. And mm -hmm. it's about the experience of losing my dad to esophageal cancer and my brother to suicide in a very tight timeline. And so I went into this sort of land of grief for several years where so much of my life was about walking with people whose lives were dismantling and ending. And then, of course, living in the aftermath of their loss. And when I talk about becoming less formal in my practice as a psychologist, it's a little bit like the spiritual transition we talked about earlier, going from knowing to unknowing and feeling a deep truth and deep, deep comfort in a place of unknowing. And there are many, many gifts to the science and practice of formal clinical psychology. I believe in talk therapy, like, you know, I'm still a fan. So it's not that I'm a jaded former psychologist looking back at the field grumpily, but I think my experience with grief has been an invitation for me to lean so fully into who I am in ways that I wasn't really allowed to in earlier parts of my life. And I've discovered that who I am is to be quite informal, quite accessible, quite creative, pretty playful. And I really like being that way. And in some cases, that's a little bit off brand with what it means to be a doctor and a formal caretaker. That said, I don't work at this point in my life with, I'm trying to think of how to say this well, 
there's wisdom in the formality when it indicates a deep level of responsibility. So if I was working with suicidal teenagers, or if I was Mm -hmm. working with people who were really having a, a schizophrenic experience where they were really, really ill, the formality is part of the helping. The formality says, I got you. I'm the expert. I'm the doctor and I will care for you. And I value that part of it too. It's just not the space that I am in right now in this particular iteration of my world. Can you go into a little more detail about the moment that you found out your dad had been diagnosed with cancer? And as someone who had been sort of almost preparing for, you know, (laughs) dealing with this sort of emotional impact of it all, how did you sort of process that for yourself? Knowing all the terminology, having been published in the peer-reviewed journals and, you know, seeing this from a very high level, now you're getting to experience it from the other end. How did you process that for yourself? So, yeah, there's a very clear moment where I realized or, you know, when I got a phone call and many people, of course, have these phone call moments where they are kind of going about their life and they have a phone call and everything changes. So I had just returned from a vacation with my family and uh, it was sort of our last carefree vacation (laughs) for a while. And my dad said very simply that he had not been feeling well. He went to the doctor, his doctor sent him to the ER and they admitted him. And, you know, one thing, one test leads to another test and they had this cancer diagnosis. So right away, I went into sort of action mode. I made plans for my dad to come to Mayo Clinic, which is near where I live in Minnesota. And I also started doing a lot of research about what esophageal cancer is, how it's treated, what the prognosis is. And I kind of went into my scientific self for a while, for a while, (laughs) long enough to realize, oh, this is very likely to be terminal. And once I understood that, I think my science softened a little bit. Well, you're also a mom, you're a wife, and your sister. And so, and you're running these businesses and you have all these things going on. And you're, from what I got in your, from reading your book, you're very much a nurturer. Like you were the one that really stepped up and like you were there by his side all the time, it seemed. So, how are you able to manage all of that? while also taking care of yourself so that you could be available to the other people in your life who depended upon you? Was that a conscious decision or was that something that you kind of had to learn through experience? It was a conscious decision to be present. Once I came to understand that he would probably die, it was a conscious decision to create as much space in my life as I could to be with him at minimum once a quarter. So every three months. And we kind of worked backwards from there. I have a super supportive husband, which matters a great deal. Someone who has always been absolutely capable of stepping in and taking over any kind of kid or or caretaking roles. I think sometimes, you know, dads get this sort of, uh, like they're the second team and my my husband is not second team. <laughs> my husband is like starter, starter parent. And so I could go 
and be with my dad and eventually with my brother as I felt I needed to be knowing with full confidence that my kids were happy and cared for and getting everything that they needed. So I want to just call that out because I think that was a tremendous gift to me that sometimes gets lost in a story like this is the kids were fine. I scaled back my business. You know, I just made space. I don't know that I always took care of myself perfectly. I think a lot of things felt like they were functioning at like 65%. Nothing felt like it was thriving during those years, but I created enough space to be where it felt very important to be. Yeah. And you and your husband also wrote the book on keeping your shit together. So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) We have been thinking about it. We have been working on it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I I really also just don't want to come across as somebody who is like a grief exemplar. Like it was, it was messy. It was messy a lot. I would get on an airplane, put on a hoodie and just cry. When does the grieving process actually start? Like after you get that life-changing phone call, when are you ready for this book that you wrote? When is someone ready for it? Is it after someone passes? Is it when they get the information? When is it when they come to terms with what's going on? Like, I think for me, after the phone call, we entered this season of there were lots of things to do, right? My dad was pursuing treatment. We can talk more about my brother in a moment, but even when my brother was ill, he was also pursuing treatment. So there was like, there were things to manage. There were plans to be made. There were logistics. And so for me, the grief began probably four months before he died Mm -hmm. when he became too ill to talk on the phone, when he became too ill to really leave the house much where he spent most of his time in bed. That was where death was quite close. And the dad that I had known, who would send me like silly selfies of him with his dog or whatever photos of whatever he's cooking for dinner, like that was no longer happening. And so that was the ending point. And then after he died, there's another like flurry of activity. And then there's a lot of silence. And I think that's where the deepest parts of grief for me sort of took place. Grieving began in depth, maybe six weeks after he died, but it started three months before he died. Did you have a grieving playbook in the back of your mind as you were going through this? Or, you know, how you said you got online and started researching esophageal cancer. Did you have to go and research like, okay, how do I make sense of all of this? You know, I didn't, which is actually kind of funny. This is the first time I've recognized that I didn't really do it like that. If anything, I went to other people who had grieved. So like Joan Didion's work, I read grief books, but not with my scientific brain, more with my like heart, (laughs) with my like relational brain. I read a lot of poetry. And I think those places of finding deep emotional expression were my mentors and teachers more than my psychological degree for me at that time. So I wrote a book on meditation, how to meditate, right? There are thousands, a million meditation books out there, but I never found one that I felt really simplified the process for a lay person. And so in your casual research with grief, is that one of the things that you would say inspired you to write 
this book or was it more like I want people to remember my father and my brother for, you know, who they were and to also understand how this process can look for people who may not really know much about how to navigate the grieving process? I mean, I didn't really set out to write a book. I started writing right after my dad was diagnosed. And I would write at two in the morning when I couldn't sleep. I would write on airplanes. I was just mm-hmm. writing. And early on, I really had no intention of creating a book out of it. But as I was writing, eventually, maybe six months in, I started sending chapters or essays to people in my life. Like I'd have a conversation with someone about, you know, someone who just got diagnosed with cancer. And I'd say, oh, I wrote this little thing. It might be helpful to you. I'll send it along. And I would maybe post little things on social media. And it became clear over time that I wanted to speak to this kind of pain. So I guess all that to say, like the book was mostly written before I decided it was a book. And I think in a way that was very helpful because it has a little bit of the purity of just storytelling. And some of the helpfulness, the I have these sections in the book called take a moment sections, which are just little exercises or practices. Those were added later. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see Diana. I had a little Diana, more space. Diana made Diana me. told you to do that. Yeah, that's <laughs> yep. what she does. That's her thing. <laughs> when I saw those, I was like, yep, that's Diana right there. <laughs> uh, and for the listener, Diana is, is both of our book editors. Edited your book and she edited a couple of my books. <laughs> Okay, so when you were writing these stories, right, in the evenings, and you, you mentioned you wrote a lot on airplanes, who, who were you writing them to? Were they just to you for your own processing purposes? Or were you writing to people who may be going through a similar type of experience? Or someone else? I don't know. I don't want to put words yeah. in your mouth. I think I started writing for my family. And then I started writing for my friends and the other layer out of just the shared humanity of people who were losing their dads and losing their brothers. It always felt very personal though. I never had a sense of like writing for the masses. Mm. I had a sense of sitting down and explaining, this is what happened today. Mm-hmm. And my mind's a little blown, but I want to get it down just in case it's helpful to you. How did that square with your professional life? Was that something that was vulnerable for you to kind of expose how you were truly, truly feeling about all this when your colleagues could potentially read all of this and your clients could read all of this? I think at the time, those experiences were so big and overwhelming that the idea that I could pack them away and compartmentalize them from my colleagues and my clients felt disingenuous. Right. It felt like the story was so big that this is the thing that I have to say. This is the thing that I have to offer. It's not typical for a clinical psychologist, certainly, to be so personal and vulnerable, but it felt important for me. So I did it without a lot of shame or without a lot of thought, to be honest. It just was the thing that I did because it was congruent. Do you remember giving yourself? permission to do that? Because I, I, I can imagine that you mm-hmm. could grapple with that, at least initially, a little bit, right? And yeah. one day you're just like, fuck it, I'm just going to do it. I don't care. Or <laughs> I'm just did going you like, for it. <laughs> did you read a Brene Brown book or what was your <laughs> sort of impetus for getting over that hump and just saying to hell with it? 
I think it was enough of the early feedback from people in my life that said, this is helpful. Mm. This is helpful. There's nothing. I mean, there are lots and lots of grief books, just like there are lots of meditation books. There aren't a lot of books about people who've loved people that they've lost to suicide. There's not a lot of books about two different kinds of grief together. So there's some distinctives, but honestly, it was just the sense of like, oh, this is helpful. I appreciate the way that you told this story or your story made me laugh and then it made me cry and it made me laugh again. And that's what made it feel important. I, in my grief, wasn't drawn to academic books about grief. I didn't want to hear expertise. I wanted to feel a sense of connection and not aloneness. And I wanted to provide that for other people. Like, you feel like you're going crazy? I got you. I know what that feels like. You're feeling lost and alone or or it's something super, super funny, but it's so dark and morbid that you can't tell anyone about it. Like, I understand that. And those were the kinds of things that were helpful to me. And that's what I wanted to create. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I feel like a lot of people are waiting for permission and they don't think they're qualified enough to talk about these things. And they end up putting all these obstacles in front of them. And really your credentials are the fact that you don't have any credentials and <laughs> you had a real experience. Yeah. And this is something that you genuinely want to share. And this has been a theme in my podcast episodes, because I'm always talking to people who use their biggest obstacle to become a platform that really helps people. And everybody yeah. almost gets to this point where you just, you start writing to no one in particular just almost as a way of communicating what you're truly, truly feeling deep down. And that one part of your book where you talk about moving your dad's mouth after he passes, like you can't put that in a a serious, you know, (laughs) professional book on psychology. But I thought that was something I would probably think to do. It's just kind of a funny thing. But I can look at it as a psychologist and realize how important it is to have a sense of like, familiarity with the body of your loved one. Mm -hmm. Like it's the body that I spent my whole life next to. And so in his death, for me to still maintain that connection that I'm going to do something sort of silly with his body or something very intimate or familiar, psychologically, that holds up for me. That feels congruent. There's a through line there. So what I'm proud of, if anything, in this book is that it's really all of me, right? It is these stories that are so very personal, but I stand by all of them as a psychologist, as a scientist. I can point to like why that matters that it went like that. So I I don't know. I, I love that sense of like fullness of my own experience being poured into one book. We're going to get to your brother in just a second, but you talked about the topic of children and being exposed to Disney movies and stuff. And then, you know, there's always like the death of the parent scene and, and, and how we expose children to death when they're young. So talk a little bit about that and your takeaways as a mother and going through these experiences with your kids. I mean, people have done research on the amount of death in 
children's films. There's a lot of death in children's films. There's more death in children's films than there is in adult films. And usually it is the death of a parent or a caretaker. And it's a little bit of a plot device, right? It serves a function to explain why some child is out in the forest by themselves, you know, trying to like build a kingdom or slay a dragon, or it's the hero's journey, but you have to remove the parents for plot devices around kids. But it does mean that children are exposed to a lot of death and they're often not exposed to a lot of grief. So grief doesn't happen in in films. Like there's not enough time, right? It's slow and messy. So the death happens. There's like a tear shed next to a grave site. And then off you go to conquer the kingdom or save the world or do whatever it is that is going to happen in the film. And so for me, it became really, really important that my children become a little bit more literate in grief. One, because they're seeing it in real time, right? My dad, after he was diagnosed with cancer, came to stay with us for several months while he was at Mayo Clinic. And so they were in the house with him as he was really understanding the severity of his illness as he went through his first few rounds of chemo. They saw him sick. They saw him scared. And it felt really important to narrate that for them. Maybe a little bit different than our conversation we spoke about earlier about my own experience of watching my dad be depressed, but having no language. So grief for children needs language. It needs explanation. It needs permission. And it needs some adult to help normalize that it is absolutely healthy and appropriate and beautiful to cry over someone that you love that is no longer with you. To have an emotional reaction to loss is part of love. Six months later, to the day your dad died, what happened? I lost my brother. I lost my brother. He died by suicide in northern Montana, far away from all of us. And he had been struggling, really. He sort of had this parallel process with my dad. As my dad got sicker, he struggled more. He struggled with alcohol addiction and with depression. And so both of them were kind of following these parallel lifelines of being ill, being in treatment, being in the hospital, kind of this uh, experience of unraveling. And he was with my dad and me. We were all with my dad when my dad died. But I think we had very, very different experiences of that day. And he sort of didn't recover, which if nothing else, really sort of points to the centrality of figuring out how to grieve well, because grief can be very, very heavy, especially for someone who's already carrying a lot of heavy things, which my brother was. Let's talk about that a little bit. What are some of the tenets of grieving well? I think grieving in community as much as is possible, you know, grieving Mm -hmm. alongside other people, not grieving in isolation. Grief in itself is very isolating, but I think finding some people with whom you can share grief stories or share tears is a really important part of quote unquote grieving well. 
I think another part of grieving well is to intentionally accept grief, right? It's active. It's part of you. It's creating space for a whole range of emotions that are going to happen in reaction to loss rather than this message of, I'm fine, move on. I knew he had cancer. I knew he may die. Like the things that we say culturally to minimize the impact or the effect of grief. So when loss happens to say, okay, now begins grief. And I open the door to that and I make space rather than to pretend that it doesn't matter or that we're not impacted by it. And if you're on the other side of that, if you're the friend of the person who's grieving, what are some of the things that you can do? You talk about all this in the book, but just for the people listening, what are some of the things you can do to help care for or show up for hold space for that grieving person? There's presence, which is simply being there, which I think people minimize as not very active or not problem solving enough. Mm-hmm. But presence is is extraordinarily powerful, mm-hmm. most especially when there aren't a lot of words to say. I feel like women are better at that than men. Men who we, we want to fix things and come yeah. up with solutions and have something to say. And- which is where I think maybe there's also this other category, which is like practical help. <laughs> so mowing the lawn, making the meal, walking the dog, just being someone to come over and putter around and be helpful is a way of presence that maybe is presence in motion. Maybe that's a little more comfortable for some of us who like to work on problem-solving things. And I think because loss is the absence of something, the addition of something can be an interesting and I think helpful counterbalance. So I like some of these old traditions we have about sending cards or sending flowers or bringing over a plant or bringing a meal to come over with your hands full and to fill someone's home or fill their space with reminders of love is a really wonderful way to kind of counteract some of the emptiness that comes with all kinds of loss. I think another place is to create some space for storytelling not just storytelling about someone's death, but hey, tell me a story about your brother. Tell me about Christmases with your dad. Tell me about this element or that element, like to ask really good questions that create permission and space for someone to just talk to their heart's content about the person that they've lost. And again, not just about the loss, but about their life. And you said it's longer than like a, one or two week period. So is there, is there a limit to how long you have to kind of hold that space to be mindful of that space in your estimation? Or is there like a leading question where you can kind of test the waters to see if this person is ready to talk about the movie you saw last night or whatever, so they don't get triggered? Yeah. I feel like in the psychological world, we use this term informed consent, Mm -hmm. which is where we ask a lot of permission, right? Would you like to How do you feel about, I saw a movie last night and I'd like to tell you about it, but a big part of the plot was the death of someone by suicide. Is that like, do you have energy for that right now? Do you like, is that an okay conversation or should we like go with something else? Just simply asking, I think is a really lovely extension of respect and of honoring someone's, someone's grief. It's been about three and a half years since my brother died. 
And we were watching a movie this week. And my son, who's now 12, asked me, someone in the movie died by suicide. He's like, does that bother you? Does it bother you to see this story because of the suicide in it? And I just, I appreciated him asking, right? Appreciated his sensitivity to that potential. There's also societal shame around, you know, how to talk about suicide, which you're very vocal about. So can you just unpack that a little bit? How are we getting this conversation unproductive for all of us? (laughs) Yeah, I think, oh, this is a big one. But I think when we hear that someone has been lost by suicide, we sort of wonder what deep, dark terror was happening in their family or, you know, Mm -hmm. what happened to them so that they died in this way. And I think that creates a lot of isolation and stigma for those who are in the family of someone who's lost in that way. We can talk about it in a very medicalized way, which is that some people who experience depression or addiction or, you know, fill in the blank with any number of labels, a certain number of them will die as a consequence of that illness. And it's not that different than cancer in that way. A certain Mm -hmm. number of people with addiction will die because of what disruption happens in their bodies because of their illness. So I think in a way that neutralizes it a little bit to go from being this investigation of like what happened to them to this general acknowledgement and acceptance that some illnesses result in death. I do think that the not talking about it creates more stigma, right? There's extra quiet and hush. I think people assume there's extra pain when someone dies by suicide. And so they're less likely to ask, you know, for our family, we didn't have a formal memorial service for my brother, not so much because we were ashamed of how he died, but I think my dad had just died. So we were all sort of memorial serviced out. (laughs) Um, But I know in a lot of cases, families sometimes don't, they don't have a service because they don't want the conversation. You wrote the obituary and you decided not to publish it. Why is that? Well, I just published it in my book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, honestly, my mom asked for quiet. And I also wanted quiet. That kind of loss, at least for, for our family, really did lean into the trauma reaction or a traumatic loss. And with a traumatic loss, something sort of different is happening in your body and in your physiological system, such that you're already at overwhelm. And so for months, I was I was quiet about the loss, not because I was not thinking about it. It was because I was thinking about it so much that it felt so, so precious and vulnerable and something that needed to be protected. And so that's that's where the quiet came in. Yeah, one of my best friends took his life a couple of years ago. And I noticed that I also have a hard time talking about it, not because there's like actually zero shame that he did that for me personally. I just mm-hmm. don't want other people to feel like that's all he was, was this yeah. person who, because he he was so much more than that. And I'm so glad you talked about that in your book as, as well. So what is a way... Or is there a way, I'm sure there's no one size fits all way to talk about suicide. If you have someone close to you who has gone that way, is there a way to kind of 
and communicate around it or some best practices so that you're not dishonoring the person's life, full life experience? I think it's helpful to be very thoughtful around language that feels true to you. So Mm -hmm. I could easily say, you know, my brother died from complications of depression and addiction. And you would wonder, did he kill, did he kill himself or did he like have liver failure? Like what, what happened? But like, that would also be very true language and would be reflective of what ended his life. I have found it to be helpful just to get it out there and to say he died by suicide. And let me tell you about who he was. And so if we can normalize the second half of that conversation about anybody who dies by any cause, I think that's a very, very kind thing to do to people who are grieving. Because the the greatest tragedy is that who they were gets overshadowed by how they died. And nobody wants that for their loved ones. That's not the point of grief. The fact that they're dead is painful only because who they were is no longer present. So I think whether it's suicide or any other kind of death, to say the death piece and then get on to the real story, which is like the magic of who that human was. What do you want people to take away from this book, from reading your book in a practical real world way? I don't know that it's a practical real world uh, <laughs> application, <laughs> but I do, I do want people to recognize grief as a valuable territory, as a time that is worth diving into, as Mm -hmm. an experience that is worth holding, as precious and something deserving of space. Beautiful. I'd love to just take a moment and peel the curtain back and talk a little bit about the book writing process. So you have all these notes that you collected. What did you decide to do with that and why? Yeah, I had essentially a journal. And you'd already published one book, so you knew what that process was like. I'd already published a book, yep. That was a much sort of more professional book around Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship and mental health. Okay, so the manuscript, it wasn't a manuscript then, but the collection of writings was in a folder in my Dropbox where (laughs) I ended up putting a bunch of photos of my brother after he died. So my other brother, Dan, was in this folder in my Dropbox, adding some photos of our brother, Dave, and he saw the manuscript, so to speak. And he said, it looks like you're writing a book. It was mostly about our dad at that time, but he said, it looks like you're writing something. It looks really good. I hope you do something with it. And again, it was just in this folder because it was sort of like the folder of death, right? It was like the folder of all of these photos of the people who had died and this writing that I'd been doing. And so that was kind of the first green light was like my other brother's acknowledgement of what I was writing and that he liked it. He thought it was interesting. He thought it was helpful. So I took it to a friend who had been a ghostwriter, had done a lot of writing And I said, hey, will you look at this? Will you just give it sort of what we call a developmental edit and see if you think this is a book or if you think that I'm just handing you my journal and there's not a lot of value here. So she read it through and really loved it and said, you know, I think you have a thing. 
So then I, you know, I went to a memoir writing workshop. I cleaned it up a little bit. I met someone in the publishing space who'd had a similar story, who passed it on to Colleen, who became our mutual agent, who passed it on to Diana, who became our mutual editor. But, and so- but Colleen said they don't, they don't, no one's publishing grief books. So how did yes. you take that? Was that a challenge or was that like, oh, <laughs> Yeah. So I did get this warning from the business perspective, like everybody writes a book about grief. Everybody's experienced grief wants to write about it. So it's not very unique. It's probably Mm -hmm. not going to get picked up. And I think at that point I was pretty peaceful about it, to be honest. Like I knew that what I'd written mattered to me. And I think I was probably at peace with the possibility of self-publishing it or of publishing it on line or like doing something with it. And if it didn't lead to a traditional published book deal, I was okay with that. But I was kind of like, well, let's, let's try, let's see. And then it ended up going to Diana, our editor, right around the time of her own mother's death. Mm -hmm. And so it landed with her in a time where grief was very alive for her. And she really connected with some of the stories and found it to be very very personally valuable. What did she recognize as unique about your approach to grief? Well, I know that she really appreciated, I wrote a chapter about how I think we should go back to wearing armbands after somebody dies, Mm. right? This sense of a visible public display of I'm in grief, like don't mess with me. Mm. So I think she appreciated the ways that I can play in the individual psychological journey alongside the kind of cultural bullshit that we have about grief that's not helpful. So I think that that seemed to land with her. You also talk about movement, which I hadn't really heard before. Not that I'm a student of you know grief work, but this is touch on that before we close out the conversation, because that's a big part of your life right now. It's a yeah. huge part of your life. You literally went and joined the service. <laughs> Literally. So, so yeah, if you follow me on Instagram, uh, which, you know, you are so welcome to do, but it's this like random combination of stuff about grief, stuff about psychology and like funny videos of me on. falling, <laughs> yeah. falling off of a trapeze, falling off of a steer wheel. So I'd been practicing yoga and when grief began, when my dad got sick, that just accelerated my clear need to be in movement. So I practiced a lot of yoga. I started going to the gym. I ended up at a studio that offered aerial arts. So aerial fabrics that, you know, sometimes people see in like Cirque du Soleil. And I just fell in love with it. And it became this place where it was almost this set apart space for me to go back to climbing trees like I did when I was a kid and run up and down and climb and spin and twirl and challenge my balance and just be super in my body. And it gave my brain a reprieve or a break, a pause from the heaviness of grief, the acuteness of grief. And something to sort of anchor on to, because like you were saying in your book, like it may take you a year to get over this one aspect of this traumatic thing that happened, but you can learn how to do this move in a weekend, you know, Mm -hmm. a somersault Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. 
I could see growth. I could see the mm-hmm. change over time. Yeah. Yeah. So you took the words out of my mouth, but I was just thinking the same thing of how you kind of revert it back to, or I should say cycle back to where you started off as, as a kid, you know, that thing that lights you up inside, which is why I always like to start the conversation talking yeah. about that, because I find that there is a through line to get back to that place, either as a way of executing one's mission or as a way of, of staying balanced and centered while being engaged in, in their mission. So I just want to say thank you very much for coming on and sharing. There's so much we did not talk about. So I, I want to encourage you all to definitely check out the book. It is very much a memoir. <laughs> so it's not academic at all, even though Dr. Walling is a clinical psychologist. It's called Touching Two Worlds, and you can read it in a plane ride. It's very accessible and you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll go through all the all the emotions and definitely follow Dr. Walling on uh, social media. And you also have your Zen founder work as well, which is kind of like your retreats. And how would you summarize that in a yeah, sentence? All things that help support mental health for entrepreneurs and business owners. And it's men and women, not just women. It's, it's, oh, yeah, men okay. and women, okay. non-binary, all the folks, all the humans. How would you know that if you were qualified or if you were ready for what you're offering in Zen Founder? If I'm an entrepreneur, am I struggling to maintain balance or how would I know I was ready for your work? Yeah, I mean, I think curiosity is readiness in this case. So I have a podcast that is just easily accessible. My first book is called The Entrepreneur's Guides Keeping Your Shit Together. So there's some sort of easily accessible things. And then if people are interested in retreats and things like that, then certainly follow along and you'll be in the know around when those events are happening. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to crossing paths at some point soon. I don't know when I'll be in in Minneapolis, but you never know. Someday, I'm sure. Maybe on the speaking circuit. Yes. Maybe on the speaking (laughs) circuit. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dr. Sherry Walling. Her book, Touching Two Worlds, is now available everywhere books are sold. And make sure to subscribe to her Zen Founder podcast for more inspiration. You can also follow Dr. Sherry on social media at Sherry Walling. That's S-H-E-R-R-Y-W-A-L-L-I-N-G. And of course, I'll drop links to everything else that Dr. Sherry and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archive of past interviews with many other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. People such as Young Pueblo, Ava DuVernay, Ed Milet, Saul Williams, Marcus Samuelson, and many more. You can also search the interviews by subject matter in case you only want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges. You'll get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. And you can also watch these interviews on YouTube. If you want to put a face to a story, just search Light Watkins podcast on YouTube and you'll see the entire playlist. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw unedited version of every podcast inside of my Happiness Insiders online community. 
So if you're the type that likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat at the beginning and end of the episodes, then you can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. Not only are you going to have access to the unedited versions of the podcasts, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And then finally, to help me bring you the best guests possible, it would go a long way if you can take 10 seconds to rate this podcast. All you do is glance down at your device, click on the name of the podcast, The Light Watkins Show. Scroll down past the seven previous episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. Just tap that star all the way on the right and you've left a five star rating. And if you feel inspired to go the extra mile, leave a review with one episode that you recommend a new listener should consider starting with as an introduction to the podcast. It could be the episode that had the biggest impact on you personally. Thank you so much for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith, And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.